Hello and a very warm welcome to my show, About the Adventure. I am your host, Sarah Lister, a career coach based in the Peak District. In this episode, I asked my guest, Steve Wharton, about why he has decided to retrain as an early years teacher at the age of 43, following on from his work as a Lake District storyteller and performer. You might recognise Steve's voice from Terry Abraham's film that was aired on the BBC, A Year on Helvellyn, which I highly recommend watching if you haven't already. Or perhaps you'll recognise him from his collaborative podcast, 28 Dales Later, in which he tells fascinating stories about the landscapes and heritage of Northern England. If you're considering a change in or out of the arts with your own career, make sure you listen to the very end because Steve has a question for you to think about. Steve, why did you decide to arrange a place on an early years initial teacher training course? It started with the warning signs that I saw due to Brexit. Brexit uncertainty was being bandied about as the the reason for a few cancellations with some of my shows. Not just mine, it wasn't a personal thing, but I've seen uh, friends who were also experiencing that. Basically, a lot of my storytelling was geared towards tourists. So when tourists were apprehensive about flying to the UK, that meant then that there were fewer bookings and so therefore they didn't need a storyteller for you know, a certain part of their holiday. And then also with some larger firms, they found that they had more UK tourists booking with them because they were apprehensive about flying outside of the UK because of Brexit uncertainty. And so they realised that they could cash in on that by only having the higher ticket price kind of activities and entertainments on because they had a captive audience and a lot more people. So if you take away the um, the smaller things like the storytelling and just have like the, the higher ticket activities like you know archery, for example, you're going to make more money. So it was, I could see the business sense, but I could also see just some uh, difficulties coming with Brexit, not just for the tourism here, but also opportunities to to work abroad, which was something that I'd had my eye on in terms of like touring, touring my shows. Then my partner was doing her geography teacher training. So I could see how the teacher training aspect was working and fitting in with our family life. And I'd had experience as a TEFL teacher and also storytelling for local schools and museums, notably the the Beacon Museum in Whitehaven. I was was doing a lot of work with uh, schools' engagements with them. So I knew I had an ability to bring in, you know, key stage one and two kind of targets within within the work I was doing. And of course, having my own son, who's now four and a half, so he would have been, you know, three when I first started thinking about this. I've really enjoyed, you know, being a father and also being interested in his development. So early years teacher training seemed like a logical progression, really. Uh, When I came back to Britain in 2015, I set about getting my degree in performing arts, which I came to quite late. I was uh, 40 when I started it, but I leapfrogged the first two years by submitting a portfolio of work, which counted towards two years of credits. And part of that performing arts degree involved advanced vocal techniques, which I see, you know, as very relevant to to speech therapy. So that's that's an an area I'm interested in with working with children. And then I, I did a show for Reged, which is the uh, visitor centre just near the Penrith roundabout. 
and it was a it was a show that um, was based on doing animations in PowerPoint. And when I was talking with the venue, they said what we'd really like is something for toddlers, uh, a show that they can enjoy. So let's see if we can do something together. Um, so all of that came together over the last couple of years to to point me in the direction of early years initial teacher training in a bid to uh, get some stability as well, um, just in the face of of uh, all this Brexit shenanigans. And of course, COVID then happened. So I was ultra glad that I'd already put the wheels in motion um, of uh, starting on a different course. And what commitment does the course involve? So I'm in setting, um, which is either a nursery or um, uh, reception classes um, for four days a week. And then two, like once a month, there's a a Zoom meeting. It should be an in-person kind of like cohort meeting, but we're all on Zoom at the moment. And then the, the training provider I'm with also run extra sessions for the graduate entry students because about 95% of the course students are doing it as an employment-based course whereas there's 5% of us who are doing it as graduates coming new into teaching and so there's a there's a few things that we just don't know and we need our hands holding just a little bit more and the company are really good at doing that actually Um, that said we seem to just fly through the reflective assignments I think it just seems because most of us are recent graduates it's still in our system you know how to do the referencing how how to put the assignment together so we're not as entrenched in the the day-to-day of the you know being with the children we're still kind of coming from academia was it quite a straightforward process to find the training course that you're currently on yes it was um Partly because in Cumbria, there isn't much of anything. So therefore, when I looked for the approved training providers for early years, which was attracting a bursary as well, I've got to say, um, there's only one. And they're not even actually based in the Northwest. They are, um, it's a national company. And so they um, they manage uh, remotely, which obviously is the, the future um, and so they've been able to support me from bases in Bristol and Middlesbrough um, and uh, a few other places as I've been doing the course. And the, the interview process was very quick as well. Um, and there was plenty of information about what I should be reading up on before starting on the course. So, yeah, all that side of things was quite straightforward. And has the course placement had much of an impact on your family life and your all of your uh, amazing creative projects? Yes, well, I mean, the, the biggest impact on creative projects has been lockdowns one, two and three. But that said, the course has started to get very intense and being in setting through the day and completing coursework in the evening over and over and over again Um, and just the amount of reading that I've been having to do as well to because it's 
it's looking at development of children, but there's such massive difference between the development of babies and toddlers and young children and reception children, and then what's required from the early years framework for the reception children. There's a lot to a lot to learn, and that's before you've even started actually writing up your lesson plans or teaching and learning plans, um, which can seem like a bit of a, a strange thing to be proposing with babies or toddlers but it's a case of finding out how to support their development through their play and so you have to know the theory to be able to spot opportunities um so family life it's kept us all busy <laughs> that's the good thing uh, my partner's um working in a school my son is at nursery i'm in school so it keeps us um in a routine during all this period which is good but it, it has been taxing but we knew it would be from my my partner's teacher training last year so you sort of knew you had some idea of what you were letting yourself in for yes yeah and so when i'm having a, a cry and a whinge <laughs> my partner can say <laughs> i told you i told you this last year i told you <laughs> um so it was definitely going into it eyes wide open and I actually can't think of a better time to be doing it. You know, early years has been open all the way through the pandemic. Well, most of the way, and like this this academic year anyway. So it's a good opportunity to, to train in something whilst I just can't get on with, with performing. And which direction would you like to see your career move towards from this point onwards? I've been really enjoying doing more recorded media um so podcasting and uh, radio and little bits of acting for camera as well um and that's definitely the way i'd like that side of my career to go forward because it's less time intensive than performing live like um performing live you've got a lot of considerations and one of them, you know, not least the, the travel and the setup of every show, but also once the show is done, that's it. You performed to however many people were in that room with you. Whereas with recorded media, it can be available for anybody at any time. So you get a much greater audience. Um, and then in terms of the, uh, the, the teaching side of things, um, I'm going to reserve saying anything just now because um, being right in the middle of the training, I think I'm at that point where I see I see what's possible and what's feasible and I also see how much work is going into things right now. And the, the obvious difference that exists in um, just basic day-to-day knowledge between the people that are working in the environment and the graduate entry students and I think there is the opportunity to address that once we get past the last assignment which is in May and then the rest of the time can just be spent soaking up daily life in school so yeah at the moment I'm gonna I'm gonna reserve saying anything about the teaching. And so what sort of performing were you doing previously and can you imagine yourself going back to that if if um, the opportunity came back up for you again so since 
coming back to Britain, I I decided that I wanted to be uh, playing music. And I had a little look around and I thought, well, the world and his mother will go and play at a music festival for free. So that business model is, is shot. You know, you can't compete with free. Um, but what can I do? I can I can talk. But if I formalise that talking, it can become storytelling. And then I remembered a few um, artists that I'd done support slots for in folk clubs and how they could really hold an audience, you know, in the palm of their hands with just half a dozen songs, but really good patter in between them that brought them into the song, that unlocked the song for them. And I thought, there's got to be a way I can do that and carve a niche. And I looked at Cumbrian material, like Lake District and, and the area around it, um, because something that I learnt from working abroad... Uh, in Finland and China and the Czech Republic, is that they're quite proud of their national heritage and different aspects of their their heritage, and um, we're not. In certainly in England, we're very, you know, very reticent to be um, to be proud of something, and I think that's all tied up with the uh fear of being called racist if you fly an England football flag, you know, that kind of thing. Um so we're in a very very funny position in terms of our national character and um but I thought, well, I'm from Cumbria. I've got a, a an element of authenticity when I talk about where I'm from. I can deliver the stories and the songs and the poems from this area with the right accent, with the right background knowledge as well so I would be doing something presenting material that didn't exist in isolation and do you think that you'd like to return to that type of work that you it sounds like you enjoyed so much now that I've been doing more recorded media and just looking at the the state of the world (laughs) um, I'm not even sure it's an option Partly because to work day in, day out as a performer of, let's be honest, quite obscure material, um, you have to keep it honed. You have to be constantly performing it so that um, you've got a, a good amount of material to create shows that are relevant to each audience that you're with and without performing on a regular basis a lot of the words just start to dissipate you know you you lose your stories the um the ability to play because you're not constantly practicing and you can't warrant the time to practice all of that material like so much unless um there's a paying gig at the end of it or at least that's the way i i see it so there's some things that i you know i can still perform and remember so i think i would like to return to the material but in a different medium and further down the line yeah of course it would be it'd be really nice to do some live performance again but right now that's not the be all and end all for me it's still about creating and getting it out there and the method of getting it out there is changing how do you make time for your creative work as a 
as someone who's interested in storytelling, music, and also your work as a podcast host? How do you find time for that now around family life and all of this coursework and training that you're doing? I'm not sure that I do right now. Honestly, it's um, it'd be great to say I compartmentalize every day. No, you don't. You're just too tired. <laughs> and it's. Um, I was listening to an interview uh, with a, a landscape painter who was talking about his early life recently, and he was talking about a period in his life where he said he didn't paint, and so I wasn't involved in art. And then he corrects himself. He says, "No, I wasn't." actively involved in art meaning that he was still taking things in when he was off climbing or visiting different landscapes he would still be looking and thinking about the light and how different uh, the sun would play on different textures during the day so the artistic process was still going on um, he was taking things in to be used at a later date and I think that might be happening with me at the moment you know there are things going in there which at some point will be um, reformulated and regurgitated as an entertainment so what is it that inspires your creative imagination even if you're not necessarily putting it straight into practice what is it that is it the landscape that's around you what influences you I think I've got a very sideways way of thinking and I tend to make connections between lots of obscure things and somehow manage to tie them all together in quite logical ways. And so everything is an inspiration. And I, I think that comes back to how you know the material about, say, Lakeland life or you know Cumbrian folklore doesn't exist in isolation. You know, the folklore is not just for between the pages of a book. Folklore is for um, everyday life. Uh, one of the first stories that really captured my imagination when I started researching the Cumbrian traditions and, and heritage was that of telling the bees. And it turns out this this is a, a custom that you find across the north um, and some some southern places too but if someone in the family's died then the you know the man of the house has to go out to the hive or find some bees elsewhere and and he has to tell them who's died and what the circumstances were and what's gonna you know what's been arranged about the funeral and the, the funeral tea afterwards and uh, and i could see that that was a wrapped up in the folklore it was a survival mechanism for rural folk it was a way of making these stubborn old men actually externalize what was going on and so it's a little bit of psychology wrapped up in folklore and i really liked that um so I, I try to look out for things just in everyday life that then relate to uh to stories because what a story is about other than making sense of our world and can you see your interest in stories and the way that you're now telling it telling some through your recorded media through your podcast for example can you see this continuing and developing alongside your potential work as a teacher i think it's going to take a back seat to some extent because when you have the 
the privilege of being able to think about um, the arts and doing something creative as your main job every day, you make great strides. And I think personally, I probably won't um, develop as much material or perform as much when I when I'm doing something else that is so consuming as the as the teaching and different people work in different ways but but for me I kind of really have to inhabit that world to get the most out of it um maybe that's maybe that's because I I pushed myself quite hard to learn lots of different material so that I knew I had sets of material ready for different groups of people and then as that went on it kind of honed down to being for tourists but I was still getting calls from previous clients who I'd done work for and then brought different skills to the table so they knew they could call on me when an obscure little project came in that they didn't know how to do this thing and they were like, we need an odd little man. We'll call Steve. <laughs> He'll do it. Um, and and that's that has been a a really gratifying part of my my job is establishing those roles with with clients and companies so that they know that they can turn to me for for all manner of projects, not just the the storytelling. But storytelling runs through storytelling runs through everything that we do um you know whether it's writing an essay or you know explaining how to tie a knot you know i'm sure you've done the round the tree and up the hole and you know i've got that in the wrong order but you know what i mean um <laughs> and uh and filmmaking filmmaking is storytelling but you know principally visually with some some good sound as well i'd like to ask you how you um how it came about that you were on the film about Helvellyn by Terry Abraham. I had I'd been back in Britain for about a year and a half, maybe. Um, so I'd already started to establish myself as a performer of Cumbrian music. And um, then I had a gig at the Stickle Barn Tavern in Langdale, and uh, it was a lovely gig because um, we were outside, just out by the pizza oven, just looking up at the fells on either side, everybody on benches all around us. And uh, Terry happened to be there. He'd had a, a day filming up in the fells and then he was he was down just um, enjoying a drink. And uh, so we just got chatting. And then uh, we, you know, continued, you know, chatting by email, like as the months went on. Um, the... He was editing his Blencathra film at the time. And he was like, oh, I think I need something for this. So I sent him an edited version of one of my songs. I was like, well, does that fit? And he was like, no, not really. But you've given me an idea for what might. <laughs> so, it, <laughs> so it was nice to just be helpful in that way. And then when he was doing uh, Helvellyn, he, he got in touch and said, right, I've had an idea. There's, you know a selection of scenes I'd like you to do. I know exactly how I want them to look, but if I tell you, can you write the script and we'll we'll do it like that. So yeah, so it, it was it was nice. It it came out of like a it came out of just 
having a nice afternoon down the pub, really. <laughs> I mean, I was working and Terry had been working. And then, as a lot of creative people in Cumbria do, you just end up collaborating with each other. I think I think most people around this area are quite quite laid back when it comes to collaboration. I think possibly because there's not that many people, you know, but also there's a certain character to Cumbria and the Lake District, which when you live and work around here, you start to understand and you know it's part of your character too, if you get on well with it. And so that's why it can be quite easy to collaborate with other people from around here because we share the same kind of psychological nature i suppose we share the same physical nature but also same psychological nature and on a bit more on storytelling what place do you personally think that it should hold in society and to what extent do you think that is happening at the moment and perhaps when i say society perhaps the society that surrounds you that's relevant to you um i think storytelling Everybody's got the capacity for storytelling, um, whether it is person to person or recorded or um, in a visual format. I think at the moment we need to use storytelling quite sparingly. There's so much out there. You know, every meme, every Facebook post, every you know um, media or news comment is a story. And I think we're getting saturated by stories which have not been considered enough before being put out in the world. And I think we could all benefit from being a little bit more um, uh, disciplined in terms of what stories we tell and um, whether we've thought about the consequence of those stories that we tell. I mean, performing live is a you know it's a very intimate relationship between a storyteller and their audience and you can change the stories and the delivery of the stories as as you go the audience are listening to you but you're reading the audience so it's a a real two-way street Um, and that's where the magic happens and i think because so much now is storytelling you know we're putting so many stories out which are not to a live audience they're there to be consumed at the other end of the internet or um, radio or tv or print i think we're not seeing the impact that those stories have so yeah i think use storytelling sparingly and with being mindful of the responsibility that comes with it Yeah, and actually that does link nicely again to Terry's film, I think, because it was so considered and he went through such a long process of filming and editing and choosing who would, you know, be in the final piece in the extended Mm -hmm. version, the shorter version. And he also shared the stories as he went along of making it as well. And it, it really felt like a whole experience. And it's just so memorable when it's shared in such... A considered way yeah and and that's all those are the parts that you actually got to see so there's you know there's other um footage and thoughts that went into that film that might be interesting but 
they're just not there for public consumption probably because they they might muddy the the story you have to think about any story what is it serving is it serving a message is it serving the audience is it serving the storyteller's ego is it serving as an introduction to a song or is it serving another story that's going to come later on but it's providing some some background and i often think that about music as well when you're mixing music tracks and you have to think about what's the most important thing in the track what's the most important instrument is it the voice is it the you know guitar or another instrument and how can everything else serve that and then you work from a top down is it a skill that you're using in your teacher training course storytelling that is surprisingly no not much um it's very very different the storytelling i was doing to storytelling for toddlers the yeah, with with the younger children, the stories generally are helping them to um, develop an understanding of the world, and it's it's better um, for them to have a story that they can keep going back to when they're familiar with. And so, the published books are are great for that because then the children can go and get them off the shelves themselves. So my own brand of storytelling did develop more down the route of um, focusing on local folklore and history for tourists and locals, I've got to say. There was a lot of locals coming to the the theatre shows that I did of of my shows. Yeah, I'm probably using the storytelling more in terms of the writing up the reflective assignments and just thinking about what story I'm telling in the development of my ideas and how I delivered that to the children and what they how they then progressed so that's that's where the storytelling is is uh, is being used more so now and um for people who feel quite inspired by the way that you're talking about storytelling can you please share how you became a storyteller um, as I said before, I needed something that set me apart as a performer rather than just being a musician. And so I looked for a niche that I could fill and fulfil with authenticity. That was the Cumbrian work. And um, then I sat down with a lot of YouTube videos and TED Talks and I just thought, right, what is a storyteller? And what makes a story and what we're going to do. So, and I picked out some very basic things, um, like a good beginning. So once upon a time, but can you make up a version of that that's your own? Um, And then uh, some storytellers use a little device to keep people interested. They've got a little line um, that they'll keep coming back to, which elicits a response from the audience. And then you get them back in that zone of concentration. And then a good finish. Um, So things like, and they all lived happily ever after. And uh, the, the element that I developed, which then stayed with me all through storytelling, was, and by my fingers and thumbs, that tale is done. That was a wiggling of the fingers of that tale is done and a, a clap. Um, but one which had been inspired by reading and watching monks in Tibetan monasteries and how they are taught from a very young age how to argue. 
and they're all there in the courtyard arguing with each other and they're saying this and they're saying that and their arms are getting further and further apart and clap that's what i think your turn and so i thought that's a that's a really nice it's something people can join in with it's simple it it rounds it off really nicely um, and also you can subvert it so I'm by my fingers and thumbs that tail is not quite done and you take them off somewhere else so that's that's what I first started to um, to do when I became a storyteller just figure out how to formalize the things you're going to say and present them in a wrapped up package that is your own and then how did you get your first few gigs did you sort of set yourself up or or did you work with with someone else to um actually put yourself in front of an audience as such i'm just trying to remember now how it actually came about i think (laughs) i um i ordered a thousand or ten thousand flyers from uh vista print i think it was (laughs) and i just (laughs) um got them everywhere that i could think of um and so one of them found its way to the the Beacon Museum and that started a very healthy uh, relationship that I had with them. Um, like well, that's still going on actually. I was filming something today for the for the Beacon. So um, since I, I came back to Britain, I've I've been involved in some aspect of storytelling for for the Beacon Museum in Whitehaven. And then the a real turning point was HF Holidays, um, which is a holiday company that have got 18 country houses all around the UK. Their entertainment manager got in touch and asked if I could do something for their tourists um, of an evening after dinner, which would give them a sense of the location and the, like, culture. Um, Because she, she said sometimes it feels like or they've said it feels like they've just been dropped in, especially if they've arrived at night and they haven't seen anything on the drive up. And then they're out doing the walks, but they don't have their own time to explore you know, the local area. So they just wanted something which was a an entertainment, but also a cultural offering to just help people get a, a better sense of where they were. And so I came up with a the way of delivering a show where I had a map of Cumbria and lots of place names in a hat and I would get the audience to pull out a place name I'd put it on the map so they'd see where it was and I'd do a song or a poem or a story about that place and we slowly through the evening built up a little cultural map of where we were and it worked like a little variety show as well because I could bring in anything I wanted whether it was a a poem or a a monologue or just a fact. And it just added to the tapestry. And having regular performances there was brilliant because it was always to a different audience. So I could do the same material or I could try out new material. And that slowly developed into, for HF Holidays, I I was writing 45-minute shows which were, you know, complete plays, but based upon the same kind of principle of um, local culture and heritage delivered in a slightly different way, in an entertaining way. I've listened to quite a bit of your 
work um, through your podcast and I've had a look at your YouTube videos. And obviously I saw you on Terry's film as well. And you come across as a really confident storyteller, performer, musician. How has that confidence developed? Is it something that you've kind of developed at an early age, perhaps in school, or is it something that's come later in life? Is it something you've actually worked towards consciously? Um, I got involved in youth theatre when I was about 14 and having, you know, not had any exposure to that before, I kind of just took to it like a duck to water. And then I just started doing as much as I could. And that's where the confidence comes from. Like, do I get stage fright? I did the first 500 times. <laughs> but after that, <laughs> you learn how to manage it. And it's, um, I would say that is the most confident area of my life because it's also um, something that I've worked really hard at developing um, in terms of you know singing lessons and just studying different aspects of performance and songwriting as well and I think the confidence comes from knowing that I've put the groundwork in to warrant being up there like in front of people it's like right I've earned this position now like of and there's still like a little frisson of pride when you've pulled off a really good show and you know that you've managed to tailor it on the evening just for that audience as well but it's it's been based on a solid body of work and the reason why you've been able to tailor it is because well in my case for the last 30 yeah scarily 30 years that's the kind of thing that I've been doing and so if you do something and you also care about getting better at that thing that you do then yeah the confidence comes and you can find lots of different ways to to develop it and can you translate that or transfer that confidence now over to your teacher training and when you're at nursery and with with the children that you're teaching in some ways yes um, because i've found that i've got a natural Something I've really enjoyed helping some of the children with is speech delay and uh, helping them to start talking or to pronounce sounds, um, ready for pronouncing words a bit better and bringing in lots of little vocal games that are just very simple things. And and you'd probably think it was you know not that far removed from a, a singing lesson or a drama lesson, really. And all within all within play as well and after doing lots and lots of improvised street theatre you know what is that but play on a set theme so those are the the ways that I can bring those performance skills um, into teaching so not in the oh let's put on a school play um, but I understand you know kind of like the the way that the jaw, the lower jaw has to sit to get a certain vowel sound and to have it, you know, to produce it comfortably. So I can then try and think of a shortcut of, okay, well, if I, if I get the child smiling, then they're, they're ready for a good E 
sound. You know, it, it, and the E is a, a nice kind of like middle-placed vowel. So it's like being able to calibrate their word-producing equipment so that then they can start communicating with each other. And once the children can communicate well, their social and emotional development really comes on. And, and that's why it's important to to give that extra support to children that have got speech delay for whatever reason, just because it, it can hold them back in other areas. Have there been any particularly notable challenges that you've come across in your career so far? Maybe even something that has been very frustrating or maybe that has knocked your confidence a bit, even if it's been temporarily? I think the realisation that in somewhere like like Cumbria, there are just not always the audiences for the work that you're producing. And that's just because it's a sparsely populated place and you know, there's a fair, fair amount that, that does go on. So um, there's a good you know, creative output. So pe- audiences do have, you know, do have quite a bit of choice. And so that was initially a little bit frustrating until I was able to focus on the, the tourist aspect and find a way of delivering that through HF and then other other venues. And then I think the I think any other frustrations have been met by basically taking a step back and saying, okay, so is there anything I can do about this frustration? Or do I just change the way that I'm trying to do things so that I can actually keep going forwards rather than fighting against something which you know it's pointless fighting against some things just are and you, <laughs> you can't get around it yeah. so it, I think if you've got a very fixed idea of what you want to achieve that's great but if you can be more flexible about what aspect of achieving it is making you happy and then bend that to the reality then that's a lot healthier and for people who might be considering um, similar work to what you've done in the past are there any changes that you would like to see for uh, performers for storytellers or for artists in general maybe in terms of like opportunities or teaching facilitation is there anything that you would really like to see change shape to support people who really want to work in in that industry i think that the the big lesson with doing the work for HF Holidays and having a partnership with them for so many years was that it was such a healthy thing for both parties because they ended up with a, a set of really refined products that um, were getting consistently good feedback and I was getting regular money and an opportunity to deliver the same material time and time again if I needed to or to introduce new material in a an environment that felt a bit like playing a home game you know that was my my stadium so and i i i felt comfortable there um, because i'd been there so often so it would be great to see venues of all natures you know music venues or hotels start to nurture people 
you know, local creatives that are around by having them more than once and making that quite explicit and almost allowing them to have residences. And uh, yeah, I, th- I really think that that can be beneficial. And it doesn't cost anything either, because if they're going to have people in, then why not just make that commitment to having somebody in on a regular basis so that they can develop their skills and give your customers or audience a really good time by having done that. Can you share with us some of the projects that you're working on at the moment? I know that you shared a few with me um, in the run-up to recording this interview, which all sound really exciting. So please reveal. Well, um, so we are continuing with the 28 Days Later podcast, um, which was born out of last year's lockdown, uh, when myself and Yorkshire folk musician Johnny Campbell and Lancaster-based mountain guide leader Natalie Wilson decided to start doing a a podcast celebrating the landscape and heritage of Northern England. And it came from the title 28 Dales Later, which was a play on words of the zombie film 28 Days Later, which was filmed, uh, some scenes of which were filmed just a few miles from where I'm, I'm sitting now, like in the Annadale Valley. And that's developed its own little life. And it's a, a series of podcasts which feature each of us out and about discovering things in landscapes and, and areas that either we know well or we're just visiting for the first time, but with loads of great sound around as well, like the natural soundscapes. And so I'm currently working on a my second episode about the Bronte sisters and their school days, which were in a time of epidemic as well. And uh, also I've got a couple of interviews in that one, which is quite new for me. Uh, with the deputy head of Sedba School and uh, a, a personal friend of mine who went to boarding school when he was seven. And we've never really, you know, had a good chat about that. So I was like, right, I'm going to exploit you for my <laughs> for my next episode. And it turned out really well because it the things he shed light on have made me think about the Bronte sisters' experience in a different way. And so it, it did feed back into this, you know, the initial idea for the podcast. Another development for the 28 Dales team is that we're making a film now as well about uh, a chap called Bill Peascod. Bill Peascod was born in Maryport in 1920. He worked as a miner. He then became a pioneering rock climber in Buttermere and, and around the lakes uh, before emigrating to Australia where frustrated with the quality of the rock out there for climbing and also um, frustrated by not being able to progress in his academic route as a mine mine engineering tutor he turned to painting and became a, a renowned abstract landscape painter so the film's called at home in the steep places uh, which is the epitaph on his grave and he's a fascinating character so it's a privilege to be working on that and we've got an Australian unit working on that film as well because Bill emigrated to Australia and um, a friend of mine went back to Australia at the start of Covid to the town where Bill emigrated to so he's ended up doing some filming out there and Bill's daughter has just been in touch and we've now got a, a Japan connection so this film is going to actually have um, you know input from three different countries 
which is quite phenomenal, really. And uh, you know what? I'm happy to say that is about all I'm working on. <laughs> it's really nice just to have, you know, three distinct things that I'm doing. Teaching, podcasting and making a film. I love as well it. as a little gig that you had to hop off to today. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that was um, that was a little continuation of something. You see, the doing the Twenty Eight Days Later podcast is that's not a paid job, but what it does do is act as a shop window for the media skills that I have. And so, off the back of um, a couple of the episodes for Twenty Eight Days Later, I was asked to do the narrations and background music for an exhibition in a museum and today they moved on to the next phase which was filming of characters and they needed somebody who they knew could do the right accent so they they got me to go all the way down to to Manchester to do some filming in front of a green screen which was really enjoyable but the travel aspect I've got to say was one thing that reminded me why I'm not that bothered about going back to performing I think if you travel for longer than you perform, there's something a bit wrong there. And not just from a a personal point of view, but from an ecological point of view, like how can you really warrant six hours of driving for earning a a day's wage? It's something we've all got to address at some point. And personally, you know, for me, I think I'd rather spend as little time as I can commuting right, and certainly in a way that is is using fossil fuels absolutely yeah i feel the same i'm i'm very happy here in edel and i do love to go to, off to the lake district occasionally for some bigger mountains and some different experiences but generally i'm very happy here in, in the peaks I prefer not to commute as well who do you want to reach and inspire through these projects that you've shared with us i think for the film at home in the steep places somebody i'd really like to to reach are some of the younger people that live around west cumbria and other fringes of the lakes because i know myself from growing up in ulverston that you don't think of the lakes as somewhere to go it's always busy, it's full of tourists, it's expensive. Um, and uh, I didn't hear about doing Wainwrights until I was well into my 20s. It's just not something that was part of our culture growing up. Yeah, you'd go up Coniston Old Man, but you wouldn't think of ticking it off. <laughs> it's, just a, uh, it's just a hill and you go up if, it, if you're feeling <laughs> energetic and you want a good view. So... So yeah, and I think I think it would be great to to show some of the the local kids that just a few miles away because that's what Bill did. He got back from night shift as a minor one morning. It was such a nice morning. He didn't want to go to bed, so he um, got on his bike and he cycled into the Lake District, which is only like twelve miles. You know, I recreated part of the route the other day. It's twelve miles, quite easy cycling, and there you are in you know one of the most stunning places in britain and you know a, a place that's renowned over the world for being a kind of like a really beautiful little collection of mountains and, and lakes that's there and it's free and it's there to be enjoyed and there's also a great deal of work opportunities there which again a lot of cumbrians like on the periphery don't consider the lakes as somewhere to work it's I suppose partially because 
the majority of jobs are in hospitality and they can be very incompatible with family life and certainly you know bringing up kids so i think that's something that has to change it's something that's been having to change for many years is just how hospitality staff are a threat and things like the split shifts are really just uh, awful (laughs) 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 unless you're footloose and fancy free and you can just get out and do things with your afternoons off split shifts just ruin your days yeah and you're speaking from experience aren't you because i know you've mentioned to me before that you've worked in hospitality and i would like to ask you a little bit about that because that's linked with where you've previously lived and worked so how have the places you've lived and traveled influenced your work well i think the in terms of travel influencing uh, and working in different places you know you see you see different conditions you live in different conditions you talk with different people and it it just opens up your mind to possibilities I think that's an important thing is that you can see that, yes, this is the way we do it, but it is not the only way that it can be done. And so having that mental flexibility is quite important, especially when a crisis happens and you have to adapt. If you if you don't have other methods that you consider as you know valid at your fingertips, then I think you're you're going to be quite slow to adapt to uh, the challenges of any crisis and yeah i've been lucky enough to work in some great places you know i I worked as a ski chalet host in in northern finland up in lapland i went back the following summer to work as a a cook in a hotel there and worked down in france and also at black sail youth hostel which is the most remote hostel in england which is not at all remote by Scottish standards, <laughs> but it's uh, what is it? Six miles from six miles from the nearest village, and that village now has a shop, but it didn't used to have a shop when we worked up there. So yeah, very remote. We could only get radio once a week. I think it's when they were changing over transmitters or boosting the signal. We could get two hours of Jonathan Ross and um, Russell Brand. <laughs> Yeah, so we could get it and we kind of listened to it because we couldn't get anything else any other time, but we didn't listen through it to it through choice. <laughs> yeah. So it does make you more um less reliant upon things that you take for granted, you know, in in daily life in in most people's regular daily life. I think um I think some of the some of the things you miss out on working in hospitality serve as a lesson but then there's also often a great sense of camaraderie and a even if you're working here in hospitality the chances are you're still coming into contact with people from other countries and cultures there whether as co-workers or guests and i think every person you meet from somewhere else there's a there's a great lesson to be had and um you know it all adds into the um into the mix of your experience so where feels like home to you? Anywhere rural, really. I grew up in Ulverston. I've lived all around Cumbria. And I felt really at home when I was in a place called Sodden Kula in Finland. And uh, 
yeah, it just felt very natural like to be there I really liked it and I thought uh, people warned me beforehand they said oh Finnish people they don't you know they're not very chatty or they like to keep themselves to themselves and I was like oh, that sounds all right yeah it's not not a bad thing and then when I got there I actually found I got on really well with you know people I'd just bump into and um, it was nice to after a while be accepted as a fixture of being in that town and a few of the locals would stop and speak to me in the street which you know I was told would never happen but it did you know I think if you just get on with things people just accept and respect that and that's the same with the lakes it could be something to do with you know seeing so many people during the tourist season that when you then start to see familiar faces outside of that season then oh well that's somebody to talk to that's somebody who knows what it's like to be around here but yeah, I think rural places are, are where I feel at home. But I do love to be in cities as a bit of a change. Even if that change is two years, which is how long I lived in Shenzhen, which is a massive city over the border from Hong Kong. But I, I would rather have the extremes. I'd rather have you know massive skyscrapers and 24-hour noodle bars and then come back to the lakes rather than being somewhere just a bit middling and naughty. what's important to you when choosing a place to live and work as an artist i would have said that affordability was important because that means that you can choose the projects that you want to take rather than grabbing everything that's offered so although you might be able to juggle different briefs and roles it's important that you're public profile and what you're seen to do is simply enough for people and potential clients to know what it is that you offer you can always bring in other skills as your relationship develops with them and then you know um, showcase those and they'll bring you in for odd little projects but as a as a father i'm now looking at things very differently and i'm thinking well actually where i am now doesn't have a great deal to offer for young children Certainly not if the weather's bad. So it's it's quite nice to go somewhere like um, well, like Leeds and just to pop to Leeds Armoury. Armouries and it's it's free and it's brilliant and there's more than you can take in in one day and you could go back there a few times. And, and I think that's something that we miss out on in rural areas because there isn't the funding there. There isn't the numbers to support good venues and to have a, a broad sweep of venues that um, that your kids are not going to get bored of. And now that I've seen, you know, how Forrest has coped with, with lockdown and how much he... It's been a year now of them, of kids not being able to play with each other, like unless their hub or school has been open. And it's great playing with mum and dad, but you need... I think everybody needs to be able to go and find people on their own level. You know, it's good to go to the pub with your mates. It's good to, you know, uh, run around a field with somebody who is also just developing and just learning how to kick a ball or wants to decide that the ball is not a ball. It's actually a, you know, a spaceship or something like that. I think it's important. So, yeah, in terms of choosing somewhere to live and work, I think it's changing for me and it probably is for most people as well. What suits you at one time maybe doesn't suit you at other times. But I did feel 
enormously happy just driving back up into the lakes today and familiarity with the landscape and especially such a beautiful landscape is is something that I also value so yeah it's a tough one it's a balancing act yeah I feel that when I um go on the train through the Hope Valley or something like that I really feel that sense of awe and appreciation for for where I live and um although I'm out there walking a lot it just feels different when I'm on a train or or re-entering from the city it's like oh yeah <laughs> this is home this is where I live you know what what is this thing called a train you mentioned yes we've been on a train we, for a year <laughs> we well we have we have none of those around here either <laughs> of course yeah which is why it makes it so difficult for me to get to the lakes <laughs> yeah oh yeah it does yeah and and also for um people in the lakes and this is another thing like another reason why kids in cumbria don't go into the lakes is there's hardly any buses to take them we've got a bus in our village uh, on a wednesday morning um it goes to cockermouth you can't come back you can go it's just ridiculous yeah and it's it makes it very very difficult for uh, children and older people and people who don't drive to actually get around so you know somewhere can be as beautiful as uh, as you want but if you haven't got the freedom to explore it on your terms then it's just a very beautiful prison so reaching the end of the interview now I'd like to ask you where you spend time for creative thinking. This will sound completely not creative, but at the computer. <laughs> oh, really? Because when I'm thinking, I just get so many ideas out and I really need to be able to get them down quickly and typing. I can do quite quick. And also just looking things up or finding a quick rhyme for a word if I'm songwriting, recording something, listening back to it. Yeah, I often find being creative is, is a like a, a whir of activity. I mean, I've, I've been creative in lots of places all over the world. I wrote a song which enjoyed many, many performances in, in China. And I wrote it on the top bunk of a sleeper train going from Calcutta to Goa, which was a 57 hour long train ride, uh, which I loved. And uh, and yeah, and in my notebook, I, I wrote down the lyrics for, for this song and I think that's the thing about certainly if you're a full time creative or if you're trying to build creativity into your life, just a notepad. You can be creative anywhere, but get the ideas down. That's the lesson that I've learned. Get the ideas down so that you can refer back to them. And finally, what question would you ask somebody who is thinking about a change in direction with their career, but is perhaps concerned about their creative talents getting left behind? I would say, do you need to stop what you're doing now in order to start doing what you want to be doing? So maybe the role or the job that you're doing now complement your longer term goal by allowing you to fund equipment or do some networking or it gives you time to do market research into exactly how you're going to go forwards um, with what you want to do or maybe you can use your current role to tailor a more focused portfolio ready for that big big leap and that that applies if you're going from self-employment into you know full-time employment um, you can still pick and choose some of the jobs that you want to take so that it reflects your your journey into that employed role that, you, that you're looking at. 
So, yeah, that's my question. Do you need to stop doing what you're doing now in order to do what you want to be doing? Fantastic. Thank you so much, Steve. I would like to ask you so many more questions. Um, so we might have to get you back for another interview sometime. Thank um, you very much. And I would Thank also you. love to meet you and sit with you in a pub and listen to all of these amazing stories that you have to tell. So hopefully later in the year or next year, we can meet um, in one of your lovely Lake District pubs. Yes, give me a shout when you're up and we'll uh, we'll sort something out and we'll go and, go and stare at some hilltops. <laughs> yes, thanks very much for uh, asking me to, to be part of the podcast. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We'd love to receive your feedback and reviews on iTunes or you can get in touch through my website, abouttheadventure.com. Massive thanks to Steve for being my guest and for putting himself forward to be interviewed. It has been such a pleasure getting to know him and learning more about his varied work. All of his links are in the show notes, so please check out his podcast and music. They will transport you to the beautiful Lake District.